Welcome back to the Crooked Spine Show. As I record this, this is around Christmas 2022, and there's a lot of cases in hospitals, um, in schools of people, of kids being sick, adults being sick, having bad flu, even COVID also too, um, around the nation of the United States. In this talk today, we talk about exactly when someone does get sick and do not recover, they have a lower immune system, how that can lead to either chronic fatigue syndrome, also abbreviated as CSF, which is easy to say, versus myalgetic encephalomyelitis, uh, abbreviation ME. So we're going to use chronic fatigue syndrome as our talk today. And Susan Jackson is the someone who can empathize with it because she's had it for 20 years now um, from contracting Lyme disease from a tick about 15 years ago. Um, she's suffered from chronic disease, chronic fatigue syndrome along with a lower immune system. She's going to help you understand how to get back to a new normal. In her book, actually titled, her title of her book is Finding Your New Normal. She helps basically give people a way to emotionally and physically cope with the overall condition of maybe having long COVID per se or chronic disease syndrome or something like that, where now their body will not get back to 100%, but how do we get back to say 90% and live there and not go back and forth where they can have a somewhat normal quality of life, a uh, new normal quality of life, obviously. So in this talk today, that's where the overall highlights. We go through Sue's story, how she contracted and became a chronic syndrome diagnosis, and basically what happened with that and how it was, took a long time to get there. Also understanding too, with this uh, diagnosis, you'll get, yes, I have it, I know what I am, but now let's figure out how to actually deal with this overall concept. That's, that's another highlight from the overall talk along with how it affected her sons, which is a sad story, um, and how they also were able to recover and find new normals from, from, their, uh, from their condition overall too, so how it affected her overall family, and why someone is prone for that. Also with chronic fatigue syndrome, CF, how it throws off your blood pressure, your heart rate, and your sleep, and how some medications actually can help you get back to better normal. And also one of the uh, causes of, one of C uh, chronic fatigue is Lyme disease that we talked about um, via ticks, and how it can be diagnosed, treated, actually hopefully as soon as possible to not cause chronic fatigue or a lower immune system overall, and why sometimes it is missed, and the long-term effects of that, again, being having a lower immune system, having long-term problems, so we'll catch as soon as possible, especially living somewhere where there are a lot of ticks. Also, too, we talk about what does Sue do every day? Her being in a condition where she's lived for, for almost for decades now, what does she do daily to make sure her life, she can live a normal life, and actually get through a normal life and, and not get to where she gets to a sick state. And I'm surprised actually what she's done to eliminate things and add things into her life to make that possible. Also, how Sue avoids the severe fatigue by taking naps, by having a positive mindset, by having a routine every day, and how that's helped her really understand how to deal with her CFF on a daily adjustable basis, and how families and friends can support her, support someone with a condition like this, immune autoimmune disorder, immune system problem, and or something what they can do to help someone get through this process. Also too, how does CSF, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, how does it exercise either help or hurt it, and how does beta blockers help someone get through that when they do have to exercise or want to exercise to stay healthy? Also we talk about Sue's platform she's had for many, many years now. I'm explaining her story, going through her daily process for into helping people being a source of support for someone with long COVID, SARS, mono, um, anything that's related to chronic fatigue links to that for one too, where you have a lower immune system. 
She also talks about, too, her book again, Finding You Normal and what that is and how, again, helps you help someone uh, basically cope with the emotional and sometimes physical part of having a health condition like CSF. And again, my takeaway, my last takeaway in the show is she really gives us a, a basically a way to understand how to approach a medical doctor, how to get the right medical treatment. Um, some examples through her family has helped her for one, too. And also finding the more emotional support through her book, through her shows, through consulting with her, too, as your advocate to help you get this whole process. Again, the finding normal for you because everyone's with body is different, right? That point about what's going to work for you. And again, the show, as usual, has links to SueJackson.com, SusanJackson.com, Susan spelled with a Z, uh, one word, um, along with other links to her Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, which is phenomenal videos on YouTube. So go to there, my friends, enjoy the talk, understand how to get yourself healthy, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to the Crooked Spine Show. I'm here live with Susan Jackson. We want to understand how to deal with chronic illness. And she'll talk about her situation, what she's going through in now the last 15, 20 years. But also what we talked about before the show is she is a phenomenal advocate through her knowledge, through her YouTube videos, through her, if you want to call it her blog, also her life story, how to get through this. Whatever you're dealing with chronic illness, even sometimes short acute illness, when we take some months to actually get better, how do you, your family, your support group, even your doctors understand how to help you get through it both physically and mentally? So let's go right into it, Miss Susan. Tell me your story. What's going on 15, 20 years ago when you first were diagnosed with these things? Well, it is, it's a long story. I'll try to keep it very short. Um, so the way this disease that I have works is it very often starts abruptly. Um, one day you're fine and the next day you're very sick. And that's how it was with me. So March 1st, 2002, I was living a very active, healthy life. Um, that happened to be a Saturday. We had two young boys. I had taken an exercise class at the Y while they were doing their swim class. We had friends over for dinner, you know, typical family kind of uh, life. And then I woke up on March 2nd feeling really sick. Um, the worst sore throat I had ever had in my life. Um, Flu-like aches all over and just total exhaustion. I felt like my limbs were filled with wet cement. I mean, just out. So I figured, like anyone would, oh, I must have caught a flu. Got it. Okay. Um, but, you know, six weeks later, the flu wasn't gone. And the next year was just kind of a blur of doctor's visits and lab tests. Um, I saw dozens of specialists. No one knew what was wrong with me. Um, I, I had hundreds of lab tests. Most things came out normal. Um, or if they were abnormal, they were abnormal in a way that doctors weren't used to seeing, so they ignored it. Um, no red flags at this point. Well it still felt like the flu, but every day. Right. Um, and it was very up and down, okay. which we didn't understand. So um, I come from a very analytical background. Um, my, background? What, what background? My degree's in chemical engineering. Oh gosh, okay. So, you know, <laughs> that's my background. I've always been very analytical. So I started keeping track of my, once it went past the you know, the initial two weeks that you'd expect a flu, 
I started saying something's wrong here. And so I started keeping track of my symptoms. I graphed them. <laughs> so I had these graphs that were like up and down and I didn't understand what was going on. One day I'd feel pretty much back to normal and I'd resume my normal activities. And then the next day I'd be back down flat on the couch, unable to do anything. So, and that's really one of the hallmarks of this disease. So finally, one year later, in March of 2003, I just happened to find a new primary care physician. We had been looking for one. She's just a couple miles from here. So, you know, she was accepting new patients. So, we, I mean, that was it. It was just by chance. And um, she knew immediately that I had what's known in the US, unfortunately, as chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and I heard her say that and I was like, that's not anything real. You know, there's something really wrong with me. Um, but I went home, I, sh she saw it from looking at my graphs, the ups and downs. It worked. Yeah, yeah. good, see, analysis worked. <laughs> um, but I went home and I, I looked online and the first thing that came up was a CDC page on chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, so I started to think, okay, maybe this is real. And I went to the library and I got books out. And so these days, the rest of the world calls this disease myalgic encephalomyelitis or ME. Um, that's quite a mouthful, but at least it's a little more medical. <laughs> the problem with chronic fatigue syndrome is it's, it's, the name is too vague. There are hundreds maybe thousands of medical conditions that can cause fatigue. That's not really the hallmark of this illness. Um, so that's why it took so long to get diagnosed. And once I met other patients, I found out I was one of the lucky ones, only a year to diagnosis. You know, for many people, it's five, 10, 15 years of not knowing what's wrong with them before they finally get diagnosed. So things are improving a little bit, but um, partly because the CDC saddled us with this name, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, you know, it's hard to get the medical establishment to take notice. Um, it's almost something to where it's, it's, there's not a medical, if you want to call it a test for it to say, yes, you have it. There's not the validity or the reliability of one test to say, boom, this blood test came back positive for this, boom, or we had this combination of an MRI, CT, ultrasound, and boom, yeah. now, now, now we have an ICD-9 code for it, diagnosis code for this condition. Usually it's, a, for, in, in our sense, the secondary condition caused by something else. Right. But we do have, we mm -hmm. do have a code now. Good. Good. <laughs> Um, starting this fall, actually, this is brand new. We do finally have uh, an I see took forever, right? Just took forever. Yeah, yeah, oh, it did take forever. Um, so, you know, there is some research going on finally. Um, it's grown tremendously in the last 20 years, for sure. Good. Um, and luckily, this primary care physician I just happened to stumble on had other patients with MECFS. So mm -hmm. she actually knew how to treat it, which is really rare among, you know, it's not really taught in medical schools. You got lucky. 
in the center. So this is a year, year and three or four months after you'd been, after you had initial symptoms of flu-like symptoms, how did your family deal with this process of you feeling good, not feeling good? How did work go? How did your life go? Right. Um, I mean, you just do what you have to. We, we had no idea what was going on. I, my thought at the time was, as soon as I find out what this is, uh-huh. I can fix it. Yes. <laughs> you know, I just need to know what it is and then there'll be treatments and then I can get on with my life. Um, it never or maybe rarely occurred to me during that first year that this could be permanent. Got it. Okay. Um, so getting a diagnosis was a double-edged sword. Uh-huh. It was a huge relief to me to have a name for it, to know what it was, to know that other people had it. Um, one of the first books I found on it, just at our local library, was a memoir. Um, it explained some of the medical aspects of the illness, which was helpful. But it also, it was this guy's experience. He and his wife both had it. Okay. And reading that, I mean, I just burst into tears reading that book because it was the first time in a year that something perfectly matched up with my own experience. It's and, nice when you have that connection to go, I'm not the only one. I, I now, now I know I'm not just, I'm not that special in the sense where I, there's someone else out there with the same condition. It's huge. It's just huge. And I found, you know, I was reading about a doctor who's a specialist in this. Um, He was up near my hometown in uh, Western New York state. Um, So that, yeah, when I got a diagnosis, it was great knowing what it was and knowing that other people had it and that there were a couple, not very many, but a couple of specialists. Um, the downside was trying to accept that I now had a chronic illness. I mean, that just blew my mind. And um, was there a initial, when you look back on it, initial cause for all of this or just boom, you woke up one day and had it? Well, I know now that about 80% of MECFS cases begin abruptly like-minded and are caused by some kind of often an infectious trigger. Got it. Okay. So probably I was exposed to some kind of infection. I happen to have the genetics that make me predisposed to MECFS, and I developed it. So, so what's the genetic component per se? Sorry, the genetic component versus more of your environment. Your I want to call it lifestyle, but more your environment. So it's a combination of those. There was one great study done in New Jersey where um, they've got a great MECFS association there in the state. And they did this huge survey statewide. And what they found was people who were blood related had a four times greater chance of getting MECFS if there was someone in their family with it. Okay. Okay. But people who lived in the same household and were not blood related had a nine times greater chance of catching it. So it is both genetic and infectious. The infections act as a trigger if you happen to have the right or the wrong genetics. Genotype and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Amazing. So you do find it in a lot of families. 
Um, and that is what happened with us, unfortunately. So I was, I was starting to learn to live with it, you know, to come to a place of acceptance that this was my life now. Like I said, luckily I had a doctor who did know how to treat some of the aspects of it. So um, I had some hope that life would get a little better. Mm -hmm. And then summer of 2004, um, and this time we saw the infection, there was an infection that kind of went through our household. We were on vacation visiting my husband's family in Oklahoma. And my husband and our younger son both got just a, a, a virus. We don't know what it was, um, but it involved a bad cough. They were both coughing for about six weeks, even after they felt better. So, I mean, who knows? It could have been a SARS type virus. <laughs> yeah, it, it was unidentified at the time. You know, it happens all the time. Someone yeah. in your family starts coughing or a normal environment here in Oklahoma versus Delaware, totally different. Yeah, yeah. So those two were sick. My older son and I did not get sick. Okay. But after that virus, we started noticing in both of our sons some of the same things that I had experienced. Ah. Which was, I mean, as a parent, and they were only six and ten at the time. As a that is the worst possible scenario. You know, we were terrified. Um, the, the identifying characteristic of ME-CFS is that you can't tolerate exertion. Got it. Okay. And that's why I had those ups and downs at the beginning and still do, because if you do too much, you, what we patients call crash. Got it. You know, you're feeling a little better. You go out to the store or you take a walk, it's too much, and you're back on the couch the next day. And we started to see that very distinctive pattern in our sons, which was very frightening. Yeah. Um, so by the end of that year, by December 2004, I mean, honestly, even though we recognized it, it was still very hard to accept. Of course. Of course. That our children might have this. Why why us? Why our kids? Yeah, exactly. And you know, both of them were so vibrant and active. And you know, to see them laid low like that was just awful. And you're going, okay, I've had this as a lifelong condition at my age, after I finished college, after I've had kids. These kids haven't even grown up yet. Right. Now do they have this lifelong condition? And with theirs being this is presently 2022 have you'd mentioned i saw some of some of your posts is where one of your children have done well with it, one still has some of it or how does that how they responded oh. now this is almost i'm not good at math so about 15 years later right so my younger son um is 24 now he was six right. when he got it he's 24 now 100 fully recovered Fantastic. very healthy very active you know he's <laughs> full-time you know he plays basketball and golf and he's always doing something with his friends or his girlfriend you know he's in great shape um what he had in his favor was his was always milder than mine and my older sons okay um so there was a study done of children with mecfs that showed that the people who had the greatest chance of recovery were those who got it young who um, who had it milder, 
whose symptoms were very up and down, like I've described. Like some people with this are so severely ill that they are bedridden all the time. So, um, you know, for all three of us, we've always had the up and down kind. And, um, you know, so he fit all that criteria. Oh, an abrupt start. Got it. Okay. From an infectious trigger. So he fit all that criteria. Um, you know, by age 16, he was fully recovered and off all medications and doing great. Yeah. My older son does still have ME-CFS. Um, things got a little more complicated for he and I because we both got tick infections as well. Uh, okay. So we had found some um, treatments that were helping our sons. Um, one aspect of ME-CFS is orthostatic intolerance which is kind of an umbrella term. It encompasses conditions where you can't keep your blood pressure and heart rate steady when you're upright. Got it, okay. Standing, but even sitting like I am now, um, without medication, my blood pressure drops, my heart rate goes way up, and it makes you feel very sick. I mean, some people actually faint from it. Um, only one of us was a fainter. But. <laughs> and with the medication, you had mentioned that a second ago, what medications help stabilize, I guess, your body chemically or biochemically so you can live a better quality of life? Or is it just very per person? Well, it's definitely per person. It takes a lot of trial and error because okay. there are no official treatments yet. Okay. Um, what my primary care physician did first, she told me, one of the um, aspects of this disease is dysfunctional sleep. Mm. Um, we can sleep 14 hours a night and our bodies never go into the deep stages, mm. stage three and stage four sleep. So you feel like you're half awake all night, you wake up feeling still exhausted. And she knew how to treat that. Um, and, and she said to me, you know, this is the first thing to do because if you treat, if you get better sleep, everything improves. There you and go. Absolutely right about that. So wow. she didn't treat it with sedatives, but with um, very low doses of certain antidepressants. Okay. That at the low doses, they don't actually have antidepressant activity, but they increase serotonin in the bloodstream. Okay. So you take those right at bedtime, and it mimics what you're what a healthy body would normally do. Okay. Serotonin okay. increases at night, helps you sleep deeply. Wow. Wow. So that helped um, with the orthostatic intolerance. That is critical. Many people don't even realize that's a part of their illness. Because um, again, there's just not good knowledge in the medical community uh, overall. But treating that makes a huge difference because when that orthostatic intolerance, which can involve POTS or um, orthostatic hypotension or other conditions, um, you can't be upright without feeling sicker. So treating that is a huge help. In sick meaning off balance, dizzy, just not feeling well, um, blood pressure issues per, or symptoms, symptoms of blood pressure issues, correct? Well, it, this is the interesting thing. When I first read about OI yeah. and when my son and I first, my older son and I first went to see a specialist, mm -hmm. he said, you have orthostatic intolerance. And I said, you know, analytical me, I said, I've read about that. You know, we don't have that because neither of us has fainted. Neither of us feels dizzy. We don't get lightheaded. 
And he said, well, with ME-CFS, lots of times you just feel worse. Whatever your normal symptoms are, you feel sicker. Okay. Um, and that's how it was for the two of us. And what kind of medication was, I guess, prescribed for that or? Yeah. So for the, for the kids, what works really well for young kids and teenagers sometimes is Florinef. Um, it's fludrocortisone. Okay. Its only real effect is to help the body hold on to more fluids and salt. God, it's a more heightened. Yeah, that's one of our underlying problems is that our bodies can't hold on to fluids. Ah, uh, okay. So, you know, normal life for us is drinking water constantly and unfortunately running to the bathroom constantly. <laughs> you know, there's an equation there. <laughs> yeah. But it allows, being hydrated allows your blood pressure to be more stable. Because when you talk about positional blood pressure issues, I call positional hyper, hypertension or hypotension, mm -hmm. allows things to stabilize along with salt, help to retain the water or electrolytes also, I'm assuming. Right. So with both boys taking Florinef, and, and you take it in tiny, 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 tiny doses, um, taking Florinef along with lots of fluids and salt. I mean, at the time we were in the gate, they drank a lot of Gatorade. Okay. Eventually, we got rid of the sugar and artificial colors and went with something. Well, else. Something else came out that was not Gatorade because the Gatorade was around for so long. It was like the yeah. only staple out there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That worked like a miracle for the kids. That's awesome. I mean, that got them both back to school. Um, my older son was able to rejoin the band, which he had really missed. Awesome. Um, we were both able to even play soccer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with some limits, but sure. but it yeah. got their got their their quality of life back to normal. Kids' quality of life; those yes. those two things, be able to sleep well and be able to handle that fatigue because you didn't have the right hydration or that right, if you want to call it, uh, blood pressure balance. Right. Yes. Exactly. Wow. So that made a huge difference for both of them. So they were both doing quite well. In spring 2007, my older son was in seventh grade. And like I said, he had just gotten back to school full time, rejoined band. He was really excited. He was doing really well. And all of a sudden he got sicker again. Ah. And this time he had sudden onset of knee pain. Okay. And there's a lot of tick disease in our area. Uh, I mean, the whole East Coast, but well, the whole country, really, and the whole world at this point. But the suburbs, the forest area, things like that. Is yeah. gonna be and we um, we love the outdoors. We spend a lot of time outdoors, camping, you know, short hikes when we can manage it, things like that. So I suspected Lyme disease right away from the joint pain. It's a hallmark of it. Um, luckily, he tested positive for Lyme because not everyone does. And um, so his pediatrician immediately be began treating him. Um, and he just had standard treatment. Um, she understood luckily um, the dangers of Lyme hanging around. So I think he had like six weeks of an antibiotic that works against Lyme. Um, and the knee pain went away. His acute symptoms improved. Okay. But we noticed he didn't really get back to that great baseline he was at after treating OI. Well, what we didn't know and didn't figure out for another three and a half years is uh, that he had other tick infections. Uh, 
most ticks now carry multiple infections. Wow. And there's about a dozen of them that are actually quite common. Um, some of them even more common in certain areas than Lyme disease. Is that a blood test to find out or how would you know? Well, that's the problem. The blood tests for Lyme only catch about 60% of the cases. Okay. Um, and it varies. These other infections are a wide range of things. Mm -hmm. So my son had Babesia, which is a single-celled organism, a paramecium. It's not a virus or bacteria. It's more of a parasite. Okay. Um, he also had Bartonella, which is a bacteria. So it's got that similarity to Lyme, but Lyme is a very unique kind of bacteria. Bartonella is a different kind. So each of these infections is different, requires different testing, different treatments. Um, but it, by the time we figured that out, he was very, very sick again and quite debilitated. He was missing a lot of school. Um, and we started treating. Um, now when tick infections have been in your body for that long, they are very difficult to treat. So, you know, eventually over time, he improved little by little. Um, he's now 27 okay. and um, he's doing pretty well, but he still has those three tick infections. He still has ME-CFS. And as I said at the beginning, ME-CFS is at its heart an immune disorder. So our bodies don't fight off the infections as well as they should. So that, that makes it all harder. So he still has three tick infections and ME-CFS. Um, as I said, our younger son recovered. Um, I also got Lyme disease. Luckily, no so-called co-infections, just the Lyme. Um, but I'm still being treated for that too, you know, 15 years later. It, um, it's hard to get rid of. Is your son still on medication than your older son? Or oh, <laughs> he and I both take like probably a hundred pills a day. Wow. Okay. Drops and other kinds of things, you know? Yeah. So walk me through. So walk me through your day. Now this is 2022, 20 years later, since you were diagnosed, how do you start your day end your day? What's your step process to get through your day to have a peaceful, joyful day and okay, how am I going to deal with this? What's going on? Well, self-care is vitally important. I mean, even more important than it is for everyone else, because if I don't take care of myself, I will crash and, you know, be stuck in bed or on the couch and unable to do anything. So it's very, so I've got <laughs> much of my day is taking up, taken up with just caring for myself, but that's the way it has to be. Sure. Um, so um, I, I usually get up about eight in the morning, um, you know, wash up, brush my teeth and everything. I do some gentle yoga stretches on the floor every morning and that helps very much. I have some issues with pain in my back and my shoulders, just like chronic things that can get flared up and the morning yoga stretches really help. Now, because of the OI, I don't do any standing yoga poses. Got it. Okay. So my stuff is all on the floor, kneeling, sitting, you know, that kind of thing. But that helps a lot. Um, breakfast, I have to have a healthy breakfast. I need plenty of protein. 
Um, I generally eat a paleo type diet, okay. which means, um, it doesn't mean what most people think it means. <laughs> it means no dairy, um, no grains, no alcohol. I can't have alcohol anyway because of ME-CFS. Especially in the morning too. It's got, that'd be kind of a, that'd be rough. It's <laughs> yeah. a rough period. So I was eating sauteed vegetables with eggs every morning, like either an omelet or a scramble, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, make up a veggie hash and have some fried eggs on it. I just found out that I have a food sensitivity to egg whites, which uh -huh. maybe because I was eating them every single day. So I'm trying to find some alternatives. So I'm now only kind of paleo because I am eating some whole grains because there aren't like, a lot of other options. Healthy diet though. That's yeah, exactly. Diet. So like whole oats, I try to have fruits and vegetables with every meal, you know, so I have to take really good care of myself, which involves, you know, it means I can't just grab a quick, you know, pastry and the door. Yeah, yeah. Right. So what's your hydration like too throughout the day, especially starting in the morning? Well, like I said, I am constantly mm -hmm. drinking water. So I've got my glass here just in case my uh, mug runs out. You <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm really literally constantly drinking water all day. Um, herbal tea. Got it. Yeah. I sometimes have a decaf coffee on weekends, but for the most part, no caffeine, no sugar, um, no alcohol. You know, so it's mostly water and herbal tea. Well, things that'll affect your blood pressure, things that'll affect your hydration ability or dehydrate your body, kind of want to avoid, I'm assuming, to make sure that orthodox hypertension stays so minimal per se. Yeah, absolutely. So the rest of the world is told to reduce salt intake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have to make sure I have plenty. Yeah. So I, I have good quality sea salt, you know, and make sure that I get plenty of that. Good, good, good. And and with your day starting going through, how much do you do you plan for to have energy to get your work done, your tasks done for the morning until say for example lunchtime? So every day is different, unfortunately. I, the, one of the most difficult things about living with many chronic illnesses, not just this one, huh? is the unpredictability. Yep. So you know I could have all kinds of plans and wake up and barely be able to drag myself out of bed. Mm -hmm. um, so that tells me I have to change my plans. Plan B today. Yeah, on a good day, and thanks to treatments, I have quite a few good days. Um, I've got two to three hours of productive time after breakfast. Gotcha. Um, so that's time when I feel well enough to, um, I, I'm a writer, it's time when I feel well enough to write. Um, I do all my work in a recliner. Okay. As the other thing about the orthostatic problems is I have to keep my feet elevated mm -hmm. if I'm sitting. So, you know, that's my office. We've got a love seat recliner that's piled high with all my <laughs> papers and uh, planners and everything. Um, and I've got my laptop, you know, so, so I can get some work done, um, in the mornings. Um, Lunch, same thing, need, need healthy foods. I've got a whole new list of things I just found out I'm sensitive to that I'm trying to avoid now, which is making life a whole lot difficult. Yes. difficult. Um, but that goes hand in hand with ME-CFS because our immune systems overreact to certain things like allergens and viruses. 
and underreact to other things like bacteria. So it's very common for people with ME-CFS to have worsened allergies, to suddenly develop food allergies. Um, so when I first got sick 20 years ago, that same specialist who convinced me we had orthostatic intolerance, he also said, I described my GI problems and he said, you're probably dairy intolerant. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know? Not me. I've been drinking milk every day since I was a kid. I love milk, you know. But he said, do me a favor just for two weeks, eliminate dairy, and then go back on it and see what happens. And I did the two weeks and was like, it's not that different. And then I tried going back on the dairy. Yes. <laughs> and I went, oh, it is the dairy. <laughs> so a study showed that 30% of those with ME-CFS develop a dairy intolerance. Very common. You're so, almost having to adjust your your lifestyle and be aware of what's going on with your body, with your nutrition, everything going on daily at this point. Right. Yeah. It's just constant. Um, it's one of the things I write about in my book that um, there's a constant vigilance that you have to have with a chronic illness. And especially one like this where exertion makes you worse. You know, I have to be constantly vigilant about what I eat, what I do, you know, how long I've been up, what time it is. Um, a log also, like a daily log of what your what your diet is like, what your sleep's like. Are we still graphing things? <laughs> I am still <laughs> graphing things. <laughs> I just keep a simple calendar. Each month I print out a, a monthly page. Mm -hmm. And on each day, I, I put a little notation in the upper right corner of exertion plus stress. So I rate each one on a five-point scale because mm -hmm. stress, it can affect me just as much as exertion. And um, on the lower left corner of the day, I just jot down a number one to five of how I was feeling. And my scale, um, one is great and five is stuck in bed. So, and with, with everything going on, how do you how do you keep your mindset able to be to get stay motivated throughout the day? What's your what's your routine like mindset wise? Um, well, by now, I mean this is just normal life for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so your routines allows a mindset to stay positive. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing that's an essential part of my day is a nap after lunch. I love naps. I don't even have any problems going on, but I love naps too. I mean, I literally can, you know, by, I'm like a phone with an old battery. Perfect. So no matter how well I charge it at night, by like one or two in the afternoon, I'm out of energy. Is yeah. it your routine to eat before you take your nap or after you take a nap? Yeah, or I have lunch and then that kind of food helps increase serotonin. It sets me up for a good nap, restful nap. Good. Good, good. And nap is 20, 30 minutes. No, it's more like an hour. Wow. Good. Yeah. So I will, um, I, I love books. I love to read. So I'll settle myself down by reading for about 20 minutes. Um, I make sure the room is dark and cool. Um, I've got an eye mask and earplugs. <laughs> and then stressors out that some people will, will go to sleep with their phone or read on an iPad. I'm I'm a, I'm a book person. I want a physical book. 
And if, if I'm, I'm tired within five minutes, I'm reading a book, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. same with me. So that helps settle me down and calm me. And then, and then most days I am able to sleep like 45 minutes to an hour. Um, you know, sometimes it's whatever my body needs. You adjust to it. There's no, there's no frustration. If you need less or more, you go, okay, I'll go with it and kind of see how it goes. This is what it is. Yeah. So like Saturday, I thought I was feeling pretty good. I was doing okay. But then, you know, I woke up and it had been 90 minutes since I went to sleep. I was like, okay, I guess I needed that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with everything going on, how does your family adjust to you? your daily adjustments. How's that variable? How's that formula work? Well, again, we've been living with this for so long now. This is just normal life for us. So my husband's wonderful. Um, our boys are grown now. Um, one is still living here temporarily. The other one is out of the house. And um, so it's mostly just us. The one who lives here, we don't see him very often. <laughs> He's 24. He's got his own life, you know. So it's mostly just the two of us. And at this point, my husband completely understands. He can tell from looking at me, you know, what kind of a day it is. And if I'm having a bad day, you know, he'll offer to run to the store or make dinner, you know. Good. That's our job, right? That's our job to take care of our, our, our wives. And with everything going on, how does your exercise routine work into, you said, the morning yoga is there anything on the afternoon or weekends? So again, people with ME-CFS have an intolerance to exercise. Mm -hmm. yep. You have to be very, very careful. So two things have helped me increase my tolerance to exertion. Um, treating orthostatic intolerance is a big one because if every time you stand up, your heart rate goes to 130, you know, you can't do anything. <laughs> I'm good. I've stood up and my exercise is over for the day. I'm good. Exactly. That's great. Um, That's great. I got a heart rate monitor to help me with this. Mm -hmm. I strapped it on. I was like, I'm going to try just a, a short 15 minute walk. I bent down to tie my shoes and it started beeping at me because my heart rate was already 120. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't left the house yet. <laughs> Come so, on. Give me a chance. I think my limit was like around 105. And I was like, how's this going to work? So um, that's why I, I mentioned what our boys took when they were young, the Flornef. Um, older son and I both take uh, low-dose beta blockers. Beta blockers, okay. Mm -hmm. So it, at a very low dose. So they bring that heart rate down into more of a normal range. Got it. And if you're going to go for, for example, going for a walk, no. would you take that beta blocker an hour before well, the thing is, and I learned this the hard way, it's better with ME-CFS to take a long-acting beta blocker. You take it before bedtime, okay. and it stays effective until evening the next day. Um, now, I can see its effectiveness starting to wane. Like, I can't take a walk after dinner. I know my heart rate's too high at that point. Um, but I can I can now manage a walk in the morning. Um the other thing that has helped is treating the immune dysfunction because that is at the heart of it. It's what's behind. It's the engine that drives all of these symptoms. Um, so it's tricky because we're not autoimmune and we're not immune deficient. We're stuck somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So typical treatments for those two kinds of conditions don't work for us. But there are some immune modulators that help to not boost or suppress the immune system, but 
normalize it. And those have helped my son and I a lot. It helps so, it, keep your body out of good homeostasis, mm -hmm. can balance things out and deal with your daily stressors of life. Right, right. So with those, I am able to take walks. Um, for me, it's usually just like 20 or 30 minutes at a slow pace. I do wear a heart rate monitor. Good. And um, the the limit for people with MECFS is like way lower than it would be for a healthy person. But with the low dose beta blockers, I can manage a walk um, as long as I'm feeling good that day. Of course, if, that's, that's if, the variable, correct? If I have symptoms, forget it. I can't do anything, you know. And with everything going on long term, does it affect your overall heart and or body's organs on your the blood pressure changes, the the things like that? Is there, has there been change that way internally? I haven't seen any yet. Um, yeah. It is, of course, a concern. You know, what are the long term impacts of this? I am hoping that by by trying to treat, you know, I'm really focused on treating not the symptoms, but the underlying causes as much as I can dig down to the root causes. Um, and we do now have about, it's still not very many, but about a dozen specialists in the US who have spent their lives you know, researching and treating patients and do have the expertise, you know, to, to suggest treatments. Um, so I work with someone in New York city. Well, it seems like you're almost you're okay. Now I've, I've kind of whittled this down to five, six things I can do every day and control these variables. So my, the stress on my body physically and mentally is at a minimum based on what I can control versus my environment around me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's a huge takeaway. And walk me through, your blog, your videos, have you become an advocate for people that are dealing with the same type of chronic illnesses beyond CSF? How have you, how have you helped them? What kind of feedback have you had so far? Um, well, my blog is semi-focused on MECFS. Um, any articles on treatment or research are focused on MECFS. And just a point that I think your audience will be interested in, now we are looking at millions and millions of cases of what they're calling long COVID. Good. That's my next. Okay. And many of those cases are MECFS. That could almost be the initial infection that trigger. That is the initial infection. Exactly. So with all these infections that have been studied that are triggering infections, in almost all cases, 10% of the people go on to develop MECFS. Wow. So mono is a good example. Very common infection. Almost the whole population is exposed to it by the time they're an adult. It's in everyone's bloodstream. Yeah. But 10% of the people who get it, often kids and teens, won't recover and will instead develop MECFS. Well, with SARS family viruses, and we saw this with an earlier SARS outbreak, um, I think it was in Toronto, okay. five to 10 years ago. Um, before COVID, it was 25% developed MECFS. And that's what we're seeing now with, with COVID, that it's, that, you know, there are a huge number of people now chronically ill. And unfortunately, they're often being told, we don't know what's wrong with you and there's nothing we can do about it. 
huge. That's that's every every person I, I deal with in my office that have had, for example, I had COVID. I, I had symptoms for about four months. Patients that had they've been hospitalized for three or four weeks, um, even longer than that too. Yeah. The long term effects have not been. They've kind of been brushed aside. Well, you'll get better eventually. You'll right. eventually get better. And they may not. I mean, that's the sad part. But they can improve with treatment, but nobody's telling them that. So I have kind of adjusted my blog and my videos to include those with long COVID because it's it's a population that's being ignored and that is desperate for help. Um, look up hashtag long COVID on Twitter, for example, and you will find so many patients suffering and you know, being told by doctors that they don't know what's wrong with them, that there's nothing to do, actually being told by doctors that they should exercise, which is only going to make them worse. And I think doctors are—they just don't know, or naive, or ignorant. Right. Well, this is just we—we we have to deal with this as we come. So we may not know for a couple of years, but can can someone like your blog, your videos? Do you like people to go to both or is there a certain preference on one? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you like to take your information in. You know, there are some things I would only post on my blog or only make a video about, but um, generally, you know, I cover a lot of topics on both in both places. Um, I figure some people, particularly when your audience is chronically ill, you know, some people it's easier to watch or listen. Others, it's easier to read. So, you know, how you learn, correct? How you absorb information. Now, the other part of my blog and my videos um, is more about emotional coping. That's more the inspirational side of things. How do you cope with this? How do you? And and that's why, you know, I wrote the book, um, Finding a New Normal. Good. It's based on those kinds of things. And that is applicable to anyone with any kind of chronic medical condition. And I think once you've, once you've figured out how to cope with the emotional stress of a chronic illness, now you're more willing to look for help and do the research and, right. do, and looking at the videos, look at the blogs, and now learning, understanding how to cope with it once you've actually gone through the, the mental coping of it, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, I mean, it's huge, and I've been through it myself. That you're the advocate. I'm just going to ask you. Hey, got something going on? Let's let's go talk to Susan. See what she says. Yeah, but it allows people to really get the idea of okay, I, I do I have something or not? Maybe, but what am I going through, and how do I know if this is real or not? Like I said, especially okay. with long COVID, people have no idea. They're trying to live a normal life, and all of a sudden, boom, another crash. Boom, now they just don't feel good. Boom, I need a couple more days okay. off of work. Boom, I can't take care of my kids today. Am I going through depression? It is a secondary. It, there's too many questions to ask themselves versus getting the right help, which I think you become a great advocate to help people understand, at least from a narrowed sense, how to start looking for help, what to experience, what to expect. Right. Through your book, they'll give them an idea of, hey, there's someone else dealing with this. How to reach out to them? So, because there's some similarities to what I'm going through now. Absolutely. So, right. you know, people with long COVID right now, they're being told it's all in their head. Mm-hmm. They're being told they're not getting well because they don't want to get well, which is like the craziest thing uh, I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, they're being told to exercise, which actually makes this condition worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I should point out with 
people who have lingering symptoms after COVID, there are plenty of cases where there's been um, lung damage or cardiac damage. And that's, you know, that's a separate, that is also chronic illness, but a separate diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last few minutes of the show right now too, Susan, is how do you want people to connect with you? What's, what is, what is the reason they should connect with you and what are your resources for them? So, um, like I said, my blog kind of, and, and the videos on YouTube um, cover ME-CFS and long COVID and Lyme Good. And, and associated tick infections in terms of treatments and research. Good. Um, the blog and the YouTube channel and the book cover um, more the coping side of things. What is your daily life going to look like? How do you adjust to this new normal? Um, How do you bring some joy back into your life? How do you find peace? Um, How do you maintain and build strong relationships? Which is a huge challenge when you're chronically ill. It's almost relationships, but also support, if you want to call it combination of both, correct? Well, that's true too. Yeah. But I'm just talking about relationships in terms of maintaining relationships with the friends and family that you had before you got sick. It becomes very difficult. Um, You know, some people do not respond well when a friend or family member gets chronically ill. By that, I mean, they don't cope well. You know, they have difficulty accepting how severe it is or how it affects their life. Um, You know, I think in some cases there's an underlying fear that this came out of nowhere. That could happen to me. Mm -hmm. It's almost almost like I don't want to become the next, in in some people's sense, next infected person with this. You know, it's tough. And some people just don't deal with emotions well. So for them to get emotional would be like, hey, hey, this is not what I do. Right. And it's also, you know, some people just avoid you because they don't know what to say. That's huge. You know, all of this I cover in my book because relationships are so important to us, even more so than when we were healthy and so much more difficult to maintain when your life is defined by limits and restrictions. Um, Yeah. So that's a big aspect, too. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you, Susan. Anything else to wrap up the show? Anything else? I think I think you covered everything. And my my takeaway is how do you deal with the coping mechanisms? Okay, now I've been diagnosed with this chronic illness, maybe CSF, maybe long-term COVID at that point or whatever it might be. Now, how do you deal with the, the mental, emotional side through your book for one and then going through your resources? How do I now find the right doctors, the right testing, right mm-hmm. medication if need be, the right the right aspect of finding my resources to keep myself healthy as possible. Right. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a double pronged thing. You have to figure out how to live with it emotionally. Um, but you can really help yourself by improving your condition. And unfortunately, very often, particularly with illnesses like mine that aren't well understood by the medical establishment, it relies on either patients or if you're not up to it, ask a friend or family member, you know, to do some research, to look for blogs or videos online that talk about treatments, 
um, you know, to look up studies and articles that you can share with your doctor. Um, I've done that so many times, particularly in the beginning of my illness, you know. And, and I'm not someone to reinvent the wheel, so I'd rather just ask Susan exactly, hey, how do I look this up? Even though I have a different illness, right. how do I now find the research to go through this? And, and you as an advocate for people like that, I think, have done a great, uh, if you want to call it vocation for people that are in need. So thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, in the show, well, and thank you for being on the show. My audience will appreciate it. I'm going to put this everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, as podcasts that are on too. So I'll end it, but stay on the, stay on the stream yard for me. We'll talk in the back office. Okay. Hey, thanks. Thank you guys for watching.